Hello, we're pleased you've been able to tune in to Finding Truth Matters with Dr. Andrew Corbett. Welcome to the program. That means if you're a new Christian, don't start in this book. Start in Matthew, Luke, John, Mark, but not Revelation. And the reason is, everything I've just told you should take you the best part of 11 months and two weeks to read through if you read every day to get to what we're about to have a look at. Over the past few weeks, Dr. Corbett has been exploring the Bible for the eight greatest true stories, not simply to meet our favourite Bible characters, but to help make sense of this seemingly complex and life-changing book. What's in the Bible? It has a beginning, a plot, a villain, a hero, a daring rescue plan, an evil conspiracy, a climactic battle and a happy ending. Yes, but how is it all going to end, you might ask? Well, let's get some insight as we join Dr. Corbett now for the final in the series, How Everything Will End. Father God, we pray now as we open your word and we look into the truth of your word, that not only would we behold you in the midst of your word, but Father, we would also have your word serve as a mirror so that we might see ourselves as we truly are. And Father, I pray that today would be the day when those who are wayward would come home. Those who feel all alone would discover they are invited to be a part of a family that will last forever. And God, I pray that today, in the midst of what we're doing, people would come to see you as a good, good father. So Lord, help me, hide me behind your word. In Jesus' name, amen. This is the conclusion to the eight greatest true stories in the Bible. And we have been looking at how the entire Bible, if you have one of these things, it's God's story. It's God's revelation. It's God's message to all mankind. It's a mysterious book, as you would have heard Alan share this morning. It has tremendous power to transform lives. It's more than just words on a page. It's an amazing thing that God has designed for it to be able to be translated and, uh, into any language and still have the effectiveness to transform lives supernaturally. It's an amazing thing. No other religious holy book does that, except the Bible. It is absolutely amazing. So today we, we conclude, and I want to highlight to you just how story-like the Bible really is. Because the Bible, like any good story, has... A beginning, a middle, and today we look at the end. It concludes. It, ha- it ties everything up. It's, there's no more sequels. This is it. The Mormons claim that this is not it. They claim that you need another three books to add to the story, which is why I think it gives us a clue that there's actually a devilish spirit behind that. This is God's revelation, and I want to show you why it's, in a moment, why it's complete. And we also want to look at how it completes itself. So if you have one of these things, 
you can go to the closing book of the Bible, which is the book of Revelation, which we'll see in a moment why it's called a revelation. So the Bible is, it is a story. In fact, I'm going to refer to it as a kind of a grand story. But not only that, it provides a template for all good stories. This is seen in some, what I consider to be some pretty obvious stories. The obvious story of the Chronicles of Narnia, which comes in seven installments. And the Chronicles of Narnia, written by C.S. Lewis in the 1950s, which was him putting to paper stories that he told the children that came and stayed with him and his brother Warning during the Second World War. And he put those stories pen to paper in the 1950s. And it's a remarkable parallel to the Bible. Really, really clever. But it's not just books like that that are modelled on the story of the Bible. Just about every story that you find appealing has biblical themes in it. It's amazing. So the Bible is a grand story. It's a love story, which is why I think it's very, very appealing. It has all kinds of romance happening in it. It's in parts steamier than, do they still make Mills and Boone's books? Is Fabio still on the cover? It's his grandson on the cover. <laughs> so the Bible has steamy love stories embedded into the great grand love story of the Bible. The Bible has supernatural themes. The Bible has drama, intrigue, mystery, scandal and twists. The Bible has a beginning a plot, a villain, a hero, a daring rescue plan, an evil conspiracy and a climactic battle and a happy ending. But I've jumped a little bit too far in the story. But during one of the battles between the villain and the hero, the hero's killed and all hope seems lost. So you can hopefully begin to capture some of the drama that the Bible unfolds. But then the story takes a huge twist where in reality, even though the enemy thinks he has won, it's the enemy who has been defeated and the hero returns to life. Ha! Who saw that coming? So if you haven't read the Bible, that was I should have given you a spoiler alert because that's how it goes. And the hero is vindicated and the hero's family, whom the enemy, the villain, had held in captivity, his family's rescued and they're reunited with him. And we think this might be a good place to end the story. But in another twist, the hero then leaves with a promise to return for his beloved family. But he now leaves them susceptible to the enemy. They are very, very vulnerable in this story. But without his family realising what's going on, the hero organises for formidable protection for his family. You can imagine how Hollywood might present this. In fact, I would say 
they actually have presented this in numerous stories that you may begin to recognise. And so it then seems that the hero had made a huge blunder in leaving his family vulnerable to the enemy's forces because the enemy begins to attack and kill many of them. And it seems like the hero's family, although rescued and in some way reunited with him, are about to be wiped out. And so the drama continues to unfold. And just when it seems that all hope is lost, the chief leaders of his people, the apostle Peter, has recently been killed in this story. All the other followers except one, the youngest one, who would have been about 15 years of age when he began to follow the hero. They've all been killed. And the one that's left has been banished to an island off the coast of Ephesus in modern-day Turkey. It seems that all hope had been lost. And then the one that some had thought was just a carpenter from Galilee is revealed to them as the great eternal king. If you are familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis depicts this moment in the New Testament story in, this, in the, the book, The Horse and His Boy, where it's a boy who's an orphan who, who doesn't know what's going on and he, he's poorly treated and and as it turns out, again, spoiler alert, he discovers he's actually the king and he's being protected by his protector from being assassinated along with the rest of his family. So here Jesus is revealed as the eternal king. He is the hero. And John discovers things about the eternal king that he did not know even during his time with him those three and a half years and then it is revealed in this closing book that this great eternal king had actually assigned his commander-in-chief which he spoke to his family about but they didn't quite get it he called this commander-in-chief the paraclete the Greek word that's translated into English as the comforter whom he also called the Holy Spirit He's commanded, his commander-in-chief is assigned with, with his best troops to not only protect and guard the redeemed family of the hero, but to, but to infiltrate behind enemy lines and give them a huge advantage in carrying out their mission. And so this is where we set up the book of Revelation, the closing book of the Bible, where they're given this huge advantage to carry out the impossible mission, which we generally refer to as the Great Commission. We've been commissioned by the hero, the king, the commander of the armies of heaven. The great eternal king has commissioned us with this impossible task to take his message of salvation to all the lost in all lands of all tribes of all tongues and not to be daunted by their opposition. This is setting up the book of Revelation. So this closing book is a glimpse of the Redeemer's two 
faith conclusion to his grand story of redemption. And we're going to have a look at it in just a moment, but I want to point something out to you about the closing book of the Bible. When I consider Genesis right through to Revelation, I actually don't see it as... I see it like this. I don't know if you need the audio again. I see it like this. And I'll tell you why. There are parallels in the Bible that are not immediately obvious. So rather than me seeing it like a stack of 66 books on a shelf, I see it as this has a matching thing here. This, 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 this. Let me explain. There are parallels within the Bible's grand story. These include these things. In Genesis, we see the grand story starts with a formless creation. The earth was formless and void, the opening verses of Genesis declare. But then what we see in the closing book of the Bible is that it ends with a new and completed creation that is magnificent, absolutely magnificent. Then in Genesis, we see it starts with the first man, the first Adam. Adam is the Hebrew word for man, the first man. And then the closing book ends with the one identified by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 as the last Adam. We see in Genesis that it starts with a marriage very early on. Genesis chapter 2, it starts with a marriage between the first man and the first woman. And then we see in the closing book of the Bible, it ends with the marriage of the last Adam called the marriage supper of the Lamb. We see in the opening book of the Bible, it's set on a mountaintop garden called Eden. We see in the closing book of the Bible that it ends in a garden called paradise where God is and it's described as the mountain of the Lord. It begins with God and his heavenly family. And we noted this as we unpacked this story. His heavenly family where we, we discovered that some of the first creatures, if not the first creatures, he created with a word. These four magnificent creatures that surround his throne called cherubim. These creatures have four faces that look like one face until they turn you can identify four different faces and each of the faces in some way reflect the hero and what he would ultimately do to redeem those who would ultimately one day very soon be plunged into captivity a captivity of sin these cherubim reflect the face of a man the face of a bull the face of an eagle and the face of a lion. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John reflect one of each of these four faces. Matthew describes the hero, the redeemer, the great eternal king as the lion of the tribe of Judah. The one who is the king, the lion, king of the jungle. The gospel, Matthew, Mark, Mark depicts Christ as the worker. Written to Romans, Romans were interested in action and get things done and the bullock was the one who pulled the plough and ploughed the field and the one who ultimately in the Old Testament would be one of the main sacrifices. He would lay down his life as Christ worked for us 
to earn our freedom and our salvation and became our great sacrifice. Matthew, Mark, Luke. Luke, the doctor, the one who cared for people, the one who describes Jesus as having compassion more than any other gospel writer, the one who depicts Jesus thirsting, hungry, alone, sometimes even feeling lonely. He describes Jesus as the man. And then John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John describes Christ not merely as a man, but as the God-man. The God-man, the one who was God and man. A new unison of being. And in the Gospel of John, Jesus is described as the one who is the uncreated one. And by him all things, he says in the opening five verses of his gospel, by him all things are created. He is God. And these cherubim reflect those faces in a way of saying around the very presence, the very throne of God, that one day the hero, the son of God, the eternal son of God, the one who's always been in relationship to the father as the son would be giving his life to reflect these four faces of these magnificent creatures called the cherubim. And then we've seen that God created these, what we are told were two creatures called seraphim, who are magnificently huge because at the far reaches of heaven they can still be seen. And these creatures, when they speak, it sounds like singing. In fact, there is no verse in scripture that describes an angel singing because some of these creatures were created in a way that when they spoke it sounded like singing and this would be the, the seraphim. And in the book of Isaiah chapter 6 we see that Isaiah gets a glimpse of these, these magnificent creatures and he says when they declare holy, holy, holy it's as if everything shakes with thunderous vibration magnificent creatures and then before them there are these creatures called the archangels a-r-c-h is the greek word for ruler and so we have these ruling angels of which in ancient jewish tradition there's seven of them identified and then god created these other creatures creatures perhaps numbering 200 or so. And again, that's not a random number. That's a number that is in uh, Jewish tradition that God created these creatures called the watchers. They're referred to in Daniel chapter 4. And these creatures were given special ability. The ability to come from the heavenly realm into the earthly realm and to, shall we say, shape shift to take on what it would appear to be human form, to take on the ability to interact as a human but not a human with human beings. In Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 8, they are identified as the sons of God and they, are called, they were called by God to be those who would help mankind to advance in knowledge, wisdom and discovery. And one of those creatures... Upon the creation of the woman, at the moment the woman was created, there arose in this particular creature 
such intense jealousy, rage and anger that his pride was lifted in his own heart that he said, I will rule, not Yahweh. And he set out to destroy the woman, this creature, the watcher. And he, who was formerly known as the star of the morning, which is what Lucifer means, became known as Satan, which means the adversary. And the Bible describes him as the villain. He became the villain. And he enticed other watchers into his rebellion. And using their shape-shifting abilities to have sex with women, we read in Genesis chapter 6 that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they sired children with them. And these hybrid children were known as the Nephilim, the giants. And God saw that the giants would soon kill all of his earthly family and he knew he had to get rid of them. And so he caused a flood to come on the earth. And the story continues to unfold. It begins with God's heavenly family at one point interacting with mankind in Genesis and in the opening chapters of the Bible. And then in the closing book, it ends with God and his heavenly family interacting with God's redeemed family, his earthly family. This is the parallelism again. In the book of Genesis, it begins with Adam and Eve in a garden, but the moment Eve, the woman, was enticed by Satan, they were sent out of the garden. And this is where God assigned cherubim to guard the, the gate of Eden. And they are in the country. And so the opening chapters of the Bible begin in the country. And there is a progression, if you notice this, from Genesis right through to Revelation of a move from the country to the city. Cities are built. And cities, by the time of Christ, become an incredibly corrupting influence on people. But God is the Redeemer. He takes that which the enemy corrupts. And evil, by the way, is always a good thing that has been misused and corrupted. Sex is a good thing, but the enemy corrupts it. And it results in great evil inflicted often on the most vulnerable of people. And God describes the closing 20, 21, 22, 20, 21 and 22, sorry, the last two chapters of the book of Revelation as being a place where God and man meet in a city that is beyond any human capacity to describe beauty. God redeems cities. And I think that gives us a heart and should give us a heart that God wants to redeem cities now. And ultimately, it will be the greatest demonstration of his redemption to redeem cities, a city. It begins in Genesis with the enemy seeking to alienate God from his earthly family. That is, drive a wedge between them, separate them, keep them apart. And it ends in the book of Revelation with God summoning, inviting those who are still alienated to return to him and enjoy the very thing that will give them greatest fulfilment and satisfaction in life. And that is 
an intimate knowledge of him. So this is what we need to know about the closing book in the Bible. The closing book in the Bible. Firstly, it's the last book of the Bible. That means if you're a new Christian, don't start in this book. Start in Matthew, Luke, John, Mark, but not Revelation. And the reason is everything I've just told you should take you the best part of 11 months and two weeks to read through if you read every day to get to what we're about to have a look at. It should. And then you'll discover this, that 70% of the book of Revelation, 70% minimum of the book of Revelation is in the language of this much of the Bible. And if you don't understand this language, you cannot understand that language, that, that language right there, although I might have the book of concordance in that as well. Added to that, 40% of the book of Revelation is what's called tabernacle language. And the tabernacle is described largely in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. Those four books contain nearly half of the language of the book of Revelation. So if you're not familiar with those, you are really going to struggle to appreciate what the book of Revelation is all about. So it is the last book of the Bible for good reason. It assumes that you understand the rest of the Bible. It assumes it. It deals with this thing that we've touched on very lightly and maybe that's a, an error on my part it's the word covenant a covenant the closest thing we have to covenant today is marriage in fact when God formed a covenant with the people of Israel in the Old Testament it was called a covenant when God established that covenant with Israel the language of covenant is I am yours and you are mine. That's covenant language. That's the language that was used in the earliest record of a marriage in the Bible. It's the same language that's used wherever a marriage is described through the Bible. It should help us and inform us about what marriage is supposed to be today. A surrendering of one's life to the other. Please hear me. A surrendering husbands a surrendering of your life to your wife when I got married Kim said to me what's yours is now mine and then she said and what's mine is still mine <laughs> she was a young Christian she didn't quite fully understand the concept of covenant and in this covenant language God describes in through the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel 16, that he took a girl who had been cast off as a young girl who was filthy and dirty and no one wanted her. And he, he describes through the prophet that he selected her. He took her in. The king took her in and said, you will be mine and I will be yours, covenant language. And he cleaned her up. He clothed her in beautiful clothes. You might, as I 
tell this that the prophets told, you might go, gee, isn't there stories like that? Like Don Quixote, didn't he do that? Yes, a lot of these stories reflect the biblical story. And then it says, and when she was of age, they married and they enjoyed each other, the language of covenant. And then the prophet Ezekiel says, and then she was lured and enticed away into adultery. And the king pleaded with her to return. And the book of Hosea dramatically portrays this as it reveals the heart of God. The heart of God revealed through the prophet Hosea, who has Hosea marry someone who was seen as not worthy of marriage. And, and she betrays the prophet Hosea and breaks his heart, humiliates him. And God essentially is saying to Hosea, now you know how I feel about Israel. And the prophet Hosea says, the day will come when God will take a new bride, a people who are now not his own, but they will be, and they will be his people and he will be their God. And the New Testament writers say, this is what he has done for all peoples of any land, any ethnicity, any language, any tribe, any skin colour. He's now taken them as his bride, as his new family. The prophet Jeremiah, in warning Judah after the nation of Israel had split into southern, Is uh, southern Israel, which was known as Judah, and the northern part of Israel, which was known as Ephraim. And Ephraim had gone off in idolatry, which is spiritual adultery, harlotry, the prophets called it. And when they'd gone, the prophet Jeremiah says in the early chapters of Jeremiah, just as God sent away your sister, northern Israel, with a certificate of divorce because of your adultery and unfaithfulness to him, he will do the same to you. And the question that lingered from that point, that declaration that Jeremiah gave is, if Hosea is the divorce papers of northern Israel, where are the divorce papers for Judah in the Old Testament? And they're not there because the book of Revelation are those divorce papers. Let me explain. We see that the book of Revelation describes the two-phase conclusion to God's redemptive story. In the opening chapters, we see the, the bride who has scorned the great king and gone off into spiritual adultery, as the prophet Jeremiah had said. And he, he had already declared that it was not lawful for a man to divorce his wife. And yet God himself said he would divorce. The only way you could remarry in the purest sense was if there was death and therefore widowhood. And so the Redeemer, when he was nailed to the cross, he died and it brought to an end a covenant of marriage that he had with Israel. Now his bride includes those from Israel who turn to him. It's not based on ethnicity, it's based on faith and trust in the Messiah, the Christ, the great King, the Redeemer. And we see in the opening chapters, in chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation, that the former wife is scorning the new bride, scorning her. And ultimately, in Revelation chapters 17 and 18, 
there's a description known as the description of the great harlot, prostitute, the unfaithful one, the adulterer. And this character is described as wearing a turban with a headband, having a breastplate and robes. And if you know your Old Testament, you should know straight away who has just been described. It's the high priest, the one who stood before the great eternal king and accused him of blasphemy and ordered his death. The ultimate act of adultery. And now he takes a new bride. And Revelation chapter 19 describes him vanquishing his enemies in the spiritual realm so he can now take his new bride, the church. So when we read the book of Revelation, we need to understand it's the completion of the whole story, not just a random disconnected book. And if you really, really, really want to know what Revelation is about, please notice the first five words of the opening verse of the book actually tells us what the whole book is about. The revelation of Jesus Christ. A revelation is a revealing. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Notice this. It says, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. This is the just a description of the first phase of what had to happen. That old covenant, that old marriage had to come to an end. The elements of the old covenant, that marriage with Israel had to come to an end. What were those elements? The priesthood, the sacrifices and the temple where only the sacrifices were authorised to be uh, done. And so we see here, this is what the book's about. And it will describe the bringing of an end to the old covenant, which in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13, the writer to the Hebrews, writing in 63 AD, said this, The old covenant has been made obsolete and is about to be done away with. In other words, when Christ died on the cross, the Redeemer, the great King, died on the cross as a ransom for us to set us free, he brought to an end the old covenant he made it obsolete but it was still in place for a generation for 40 years it was still in place when Christ died on that cross around about 30 33 AD or so the old covenant was made obsolete but it was still in play until its elements were done away with and this is what the book of Revelation describes the doing away of the priesthood the sacrifices and the temple John is told in Revelation chapter 11, go and measure the temple. Straight away, he's now, we realise, he's off Patmos. You can't go and measure the temple in Jerusalem if you're on Patmos. He's off Patmos. And measurement speaks of bringing things to a close, that, that language. And so he's able to measure the temple as a way of saying this thing that Jesus said in Matthew 24 would be torn apart with not one stone left standing upon another. Same language as Jeremiah the prophet, describing what God would use the Babylonians to do. And so we see that the old covenant is now going to be, as it says in Hebrews 8.13, done away with. And so we see in Revelation chapter 12, 
that it describes a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and a, and a crown with stars. Sun, moon and stars speaks of Israel. Joseph dreamed a dream, Genesis chapter 37, where he saw the sun, moon and stars bowing down to him. And when he told his father and his brothers, his father said, Ha! Are you saying that I and your mother and your brothers will bow down to you? Who do you think you are? So Joseph's father, whose name was Jacob and became known as Israel, knew exactly what sun, moon and stars meant. Of course, if you know the story, Joseph did have his father and brothers come and bow down to him when he was prime minister of Egypt without them realising it. Sun, moon and stars. So this woman, clothed with the sun, the moon and the stars as a crown, is about to give birth, it says in Revelation chapter 12. About to give birth to a child who would grow to be the one who would rule the nations with a rod of iron, it says in Revelation chapter 12. And the red dragon, the great red dragon. So here's the parallel again. In Genesis chapter 3, Satan is depicted as a snake. By the book of Revelation, evil, his evil influence has grown so vast that he's now depicted as a great red dragon. And it says this, he waited for the child to be born to devour it. But the child was kept from him. And the child fulfilled his mission, Christ, and ascended to heaven. And then it says, a great war broke out in heaven. Michael doing battle with the dragon and his angels and the dragon and his angels whom it says the dragon had swept a third of the stars down to earth. They are now in their final days and it says this in Revelation 12, Satan knew his time was short. Something was about to happen because under the old covenant, the law, as Paul says, It was a covenant that brought great condemnation. It brought guilt and shame. It accused you of sin. It declared you not worthy. That's why you needed to continually be offering animal sacrifices as your substitute to atone for your sin. And his time was short when that covenant would be done away with and he was out to kill and destroy God's people. It says in Revelation chapter 12, but it says this, but the people of God overcame the devil with the word of their testimony which is faith in Christ and the blood of the anyone know the lamb the blood of the lamb the lamb is the description that runs all through the book of revelation of Christ the lamb it's a beautiful picture of the one who looks so vulnerable the one who looks like he's no threat yet. And the book of Revelation makes this comment, they will make war on the lamb. When the devil was attacking the church, those early Christians, it says he made war on the lamb. It's kind of that movie where, you know, there's thousands of movies, don't worry about which one, there's lots of them, where, you know, well, let's take one of the all-time classics, My Big Fat Greek Wedding, where it says, where there's a scene in there where the brother of the sister comes up 
to the guy who's going to marry his sister and says, you hurt her, I'll kill you. And the brother's like, and then he says, you remember the next bit? Only kidding, only kidding. I'm only, ki- I'm only kidding. No, I'm not. <laughs> and it's you touch my family, we will kill you. I was with someone yesterday, wasn't I, Michael, who said if someone ever did anything to his family, just random, hypothetically, that there would be great harm, I think was the exact quote that you and I heard together because it came out of your mouth, that, (laughs) am I right? right? I'm right. See, when the enemy touched the people of God, he said, you touch my people, you touch me. They made war on the lamb and the lamb will conquer them, it says. For he is Lord of Lords. Now this is prophecy to the original recipients of this and the King of Kings. And those with him are called chosen and faithful. But notice that the enemy thinks, just a lamb. The church looks like a lamb. Wipe them out, no problem. But let's, let's, I'm going I'm to rush ahead and then I'm going to come back just a little bit. So track with me now. The closing book of the Bible says, after the Lamb, the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, has defeated the enemy. He who is seated on the throne. I love that picture because when you're seated on the throne, you're not flustered. It's kind of how I want to lead. And can I just tell you, I am a gazillion miles away from that goal. Because when stress comes upon me, I get flustered. I might be the only one here in this room, but I don't think so, Deborah. When stress and pressure comes... I get flustered. And I remember the lamb is seated on the throne. He's seated on the throne. That's how I want to lead, in great confidence with God. And this is what he says. Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. We've got a written account of the grand story. And here it is, the Bible. He is making all things new. So we have the original creation corrupted, subject to deterioration. And now he says, but I'm making all things new. And I want to take that as literally as I can and think God wants to redeem all things for his glory right now. And ultimately he will do it. And he said to me, it is done. I am Alpha and Omega. The beginning and the end to the thirsty. Are you thirsty? He, I will give, he says, from the spring of the water of life without payment. Want to have a drink? Want to have a drink of that life-giving water that will cause you never to thirst again? You can. You can right now. Maybe you're drinking stuff that just makes your mouth dry. But he, the great king, the eternal God, the Redeemer, the one who paid the price to set you free, as described in this grand story, now offers you a drink for your soul. That means those things that you've tried to satisfy your soul, the relationships you've tried, the internet pornography that you've tried. What a despicable thing that is. Does not satisfy, but he does. Let me jump back just a little bit. Because I love these two verses. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. 
This is what I said was one of the parallelisms of the Bible. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Did you hear covenant language? It's the fulfilment of the new covenant. If you know Christ, you can depart this life and still not be dead because you can go into that dimension where reality exists. And that might sound odd, but C.S. Lewis, Lewis depicted it wonderfully in the last book of the Chronicles of Narnia called The Last Battle, where the children who die in a train crash are caught into Narnia at that point. And they're in, a, they're in Narnia and, and they're seeing Narnia destroyed and Aslan on the other side of a door frame standing in the middle of a paddock and Aslan beckons them, come through. And they come through and suddenly the, the air is different. The sun feels energising. This is different. They look through the door frame and they see Narnia in smouldering ash being destroyed. And, the, and Aslan begins to run and says, come. And the children begin to run with Aslan the lion. And as Aslan gets faster, the children somehow are able to keep up with him. And Lucy, I think it was, says to him, Aslan, where are we? And he says, Narnia. Lucy's confused. Narnia? But we just saw Narnia destroyed. Where are we? And Aslan says, this is my kingdom. The real Narnia. where you'll never die again, where you'll never grow tired, you'll never grow weary. And C.S. Lewis is, is capturing. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And Aslan says to Lucy, that was not the real Narnia. That was the shadow lands of Narnia. Now you're in the real thing. And we will go from this life and we will enter through a doorway of sorts and come into a dimension which is God's kingdom in fullness and we will wonder, where are we? And God will say, you're in my kingdom. And that's where we are created and designed to be. But if you are not in a relationship with the great king, you are alienated from him. I'm going to be back in a moment and I'm going to invite you to come through the doorway right now and come into a relationship with him. Please stand. If you don't know the author of this story, the one who's written himself into it, I want to introduce you to him now. You are not a million miles away. You are one prayer away. 
a prayer that says, God, I want to know you. I want to be set free. I want to come into your kingdom right now and know you for all eternity. You pray a prayer like that from your heart. Those words don't matter. Just let it be the cry of your heart. The promise of his word is he will accept you. If that's the prayer of your heart now, I'm going to pray for you. Father, thank you for those that you're calling home. Thank you, Lord, for those who feel lost and alone. But now, Lord, realise you invite them to come home. Home with you is where they belong. A life with you is a life they were created to live. It's not about being religious. It's about knowing you, oh God. And I pray, Lord, that this would be the first day of an entire journey throughout this life and into the life to come that will just get, keep getting deeper and sweeter. Father, thank you for those who've made that decision to turn to you right now. And Lord, help us as a church family, your part of your heavenly family to care for them, to welcome them as a brother or sister and to nurture them in their family relationship with you. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm going to pronounce a benediction in a moment. You would have seen in the news that we had a wall of shoeboxes that went from here just past that microphone. I just want to say thank you to everyone who did that. They were taken away in a car that looked like a shoebox on wheels because it was a little little hatch thing and it was just full of our shoeboxes and it went off. And if you've still got some and you get them in today or maybe tomorrow morning, they're, they're coming back tomorrow afternoon to take the rest. So thank you so much. Let's pray for the effectiveness of those shoeboxes. So Lord, we pray that the shoeboxes that have been packed with love and care and concern for those less fortunate than us would be a great blessing into the lives of those children who receive it and also the villages where those children are. We pray, Lord, that it would introduce them to the great God, the great eternal King, the Redeemer of their soul. And that, Lord, they'd come into that knowledge of, of You. Thank You, Lord, for those who gave. Bless each of the shoeboxes that have been given. And now, Lord, I pray that we might know the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship with the Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. God bless. As we've heard tonight, the closing book of the Bible is a glimpse of the Redeemer's two-phase conclusion to the grand story of redemption. Have you met the author? And do you know where you are in this great story? More from Dr. Corbett next week. Dr. Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. Thank you for joining us. We look forward to meeting you again same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.